as we sing songs of the season a little bit earlier, one of them was actually a request. It was a request from me. I thought it would be nice to be able to be reminded of the lyrics of that famous Christmas carol because uh, it connects to the message that we have on this third Sunday of Advent. And that was, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Not the best of grammar, but a catchy, a catchy line all the same. We remember it. It's based, actually, the story of those three kings is rooted in the Christmas story, in the Gospel of Matthew, as you see before you. If you have your Bible, open it to Matthew chapter 2. We read that after Jesus was born. So this is one of those that we put in. As you see, there are the kings at the manger scene, but they take place after the birth of Christ, their arrival. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. These Magi, these representatives of royalty, have come to pay tribute to the newborn King of the Jews. Called this message Three Kings. Three Kings of Christmas. When we think of the three kings of Christmas, this is the image that springs to mind. It's been planted in us, it's grown in countless manger scenes, Christmas programs, living nativities, Christmas cards. When we see even a silhouette of Eastern men on camels, three of them, we know who they are. They're the three kings. But as you know, the reality of that isn't really based on the Bible. It's traditions that have grown up over the last two millennium with zero connection to the actual events. First, we know that the three kings made famous in that wonderful hymn, A Christmas Carol, not to go into too great a depth. If you notice the, the author of that carol, it said John H. Hopkins. Like the hospital? No, not connected. John Henry Hopkins Jr., was an Anglican churchman, but because he was an Anglican in the United States, after the Revolutionary War, you didn't want to be a member of the Church of England. They were on the outs with the newborn American country, and so they became known as Episcopalians because of their church structure. Well, this man, John Henry Hopkins Jr., was an Episcopalian churchman throughout his life. He taught in schools and in seminaries and Bible schools. He wrote hymns. He never married, but he was super committed to his work. And though many of his hymns if, are, are, are unknown to us today, they were known in Anglican circles for a time. But one song, and he loved to write songs for the holidays. He wrote Easter anthems and a lot of Christmas and Advent songs. Technically, he said this song, We Three Kings of Orientar, was not a Christmas song. It was a song for Epiphany. And if you know your church calendar, Epiphany celebrates the arrival of the kings. Now, in the uh, Dominican Republic, they know the Three Kings Day. Epiphany is really sort of a separate holiday, especially in high church or Catholic countries. Epiphany is seen as different. Often celebrated, remind me, is it January 6th or 7th? Right in there, January 6th. I thought that was when we celebrated uh, Donald Trump. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> now you hear January 6th and your hair on your neck stands up. But that's the King's Day. Well, John Henry Hopkins, in that incredible hymn, he got it all right. 
except for all the stuff he got wrong. Now, I love that, I love that Christmas carol, that epiphany carol, because it is better than anything about speaking of the symbolism of the three gifts mentioned. The gold for royalty, the frankincense for deity, because that was the incense in the temple that went up as prayers before God, and the myrrh, which was that expensive spice often used in burial practices. And so as you just sang this morning, we have king, we have God, we have sacrifice, all represented to us, the life of Jesus represented to us in the gifts of the Magi. The only hard part in that hymn is the first part. It, it, it's really rooted in the, in the tradition that's grown up, where we translate them from being uh, court ambassadors, court advisors, wise men, magi, astrologers, just the same office that Daniel served in Babylon, the wise men of the court. That's who the magi basically are. And we have made them into kings, eastern kings. They come from the Orient. But if you notice, as you always look at the kings, they're different races. Three kings, three races. You have one of the kings, which is from Arabia, probably around Babylon. You have one of them, a little bit darker skin, because he's from India. And you have one of them from Africa, do you recognize your wise men are three different races? And they not only gave them three races to show that all the nations were recognizing Jesus as the newborn king, but they gave them names, Caspar, Balthazar, and Melchior. All of that is just tradition. It's all made up. And one thing that they would never do, those magi, they wouldn't even ride camels. So apart from the kings and the names and everything and the camels, the rest is really good. Isn't it interesting? The camels are pack animals. Oh, there would be camels in any great uh, caravan coming from the east, but the people of importance would always ride Arabian horses, far more comfortable and befitting their station. It's interesting. So apart from the camels and all the imagery, it's just right. The three magi. And it's not at Christmas, and they're not at the manger. But apart from that, it's great. The gifts were wonderful. So having said that, having kicked over the nativity set and taken the kings and put them on the shelf, there were three kings. I love the song because that song, though the magi aren't the three kings, there are definitely three kings in the Christmas story. The first, of course, is the one that begins the, the story in the gospel of Luke, and that is the proud king. His name is Augustus, Augustus, Caesar Augustus, the proud king, the greatest king in the world at that time. Now, Augustus, he was not only king of the Romans, he was the first of the Roman emperors. I have a few facts looking at Augustus' life very quickly. He wasn't born with that high title, Augustus. He was born as Gaius Octavius in the Julii family. Julii, where we get our month of July from, it's taken from the Julii family because of their most famous son, Julius Caesar. Now, he wasn't Augustus' father, but he was his great uncle. And when Caesar was killed on the Ides of March, March 15th, killed in the Senate, stabbed to death by his fellow senators, in his will, he named his great nephew Octavius as his heir and as his adopted son. 
And so as you know your Roman history over the next number of years, there are enormous struggles, a Roman civil war with not only Octavius but a man named Lepidus and of course Mark Antony and his his wife Cleopatra. The whole Roman, it wasn't an empire, it was a republic at that time. It went to war with one another and through trials and battles, Octavian won. And he was no longer the first of many. He was no longer a senator. He was now an emperor. Where Julius Caesar was assassinated for wanting to become a dictator, which they'd had from time to time in Rome, he became much greater than any other. And he received titles in keeping with that. As he ended the Roman Republic, the Senate became a rubber stamp, and they did a number of things. In those days, the Senate, the people of Rome, could vote on your deity to vote for you to become a god, and they would do that from time to time. They, didn't, they thought they were actually just recognizing what some, the, the gods had done, that you had a, div, a divinity about you. They proclaimed him divine in 27 BC, and that's where he gets the name Augustus. So right after his family name, Julii, the month of July, his personal name, Augustus, his title, becomes the month of August that we have today. Augustus means one who is to be venerated, the highest of the highs. It's somebody who has magnificence about them. Literally in Latin, the name means you increase from greatness to greatness day by day by day. And Augustus then became an imperial title uh, throughout all of the time of the Caesars. Now, it's interesting that they took that vote of divinity seriously. It wasn't after his death, but during his lifetime, Octavian, now Augustus, had temples built to him, sacrifice made to him and in his name, and prayers offered up not only for him, but to him. Now, true emperor worship came later during the time of Gaius Caligula, one of the most crazy of the Caesars. He wanted to be worshipped as a god, but Augustus, he just took it in stride. He just took it in stride. He had probably every right, humanly speaking, to be proud. He had done what no one else had ever done. And so he came into his power. By the time of Jesus' birth, Augustus was in his golden age. And the entire world, as they reckoned it, sure they knew there was something in the east, China, ancient kingdoms, but none of that mattered. The world that mattered was the Roman world. The Mediterranean Sea was a Roman lake. And Augustus, from Britain to Egypt, he was the ruler of it all. And so came a time where to run his empire, he needed the funds. From time to time, they would want to keep their tax rolls up to date, and they would want everyone counted. And so that brings us to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. In Luke, we read this familiar passage. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. That's not what the Bible says. That's the NIV translating and interpreting for you the original words that a census would be taken of the entire world. They put Roman in later for you and I to know that it was the Roman world, not China and other parts of the world. But to the Romans, that was the world, everything that counted. Of the entire Roman world, this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. 
Luke implies there are multiple censuses taken. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Augustus, a single man, could turn the world upside down with a word. He decreed. Didn't have to fight to get it through the Senate. He spoke, and the whole world was set in motion. And we know he was in God's hands, that God was behind this. But can you imagine the pride of place that a man like Caesar Augustus would have? It's incredible. But when we look at Scripture, we say, well, pride, isn't that bad? Isn't that what caused Satan to fall? And isn't it connected to all sin from Adam and Eve to us today? Doesn't James chapter 4, 6 say that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble? It does. In fact, we see in Scripture God punishing even kings who, earthly speaking, have every right to be proud, punishing them for overweening pride. Even a king with a heart after God's, King David. One of the saddest episodes in David's life was late in his reign, very late in his reign. It seemed that faith, he must have struggled with it because David began to put more emphasis on his earthly power than his trust in God. And David, in his pride, wanted all of the fighting men of Israel to be counted so he could see how he stacked up against the rest of the world. First Chronicles says that Satan is behind that. It's recorded in Kings and Chronicles. First Chronicles 21 says, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So David said to Joab, the commander of the troops, go and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan. Then report back to me that I may know how many there are. Sounds innocuous. But the reason behind it was a lack of faith and pride in himself as the commander of these enormous armies. If you know the story, the generals say, no, king, don't do it. Don't do it. But he commands, and they have to obey. Well, God comes to David through the prophets and says, you've sinned greatly. In your pride, you have sinned greatly, and you have to pick your poison. David, you're going to be judged, but the judgment won't fall on you. It's going to fall upon your people whom you are the king of. And the three threes, do you remember? They say you can have famine for three years and your people starve. Or you can have your enemies defeat you in battles for three months. Or there can be plague in Israel for three days. And David wants to get it out of the way and get it over with, so he chooses the plague for three days. The angel of death runs rampant through Israel because of the king's pride. He's not the only proud king in the Old Testament. And when we think of pride, we think of the rise and fall of Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon. You remember the king was troubled, and he called his magi, Daniel, his best interpreter of dreams. He says, Daniel, I've been having this crazy dream about this giant tree, and, and he spells it all out. And Daniel says, I wish I had a better interpretation for you, but it's bad. Because of your great pride, you as the great tree, you're going to be cut down. 
and you're going to be out with the wild animals and you are going to lose your senses and all this judgment was going to fall upon him. And you think knowing that Nebuchadnezzar could avoid that trap of pride. But he was so great, he couldn't help himself. So we read in Daniel chapter 4, all this happened, it came to pass. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and the glory of my majesty? The Bible says while those words were still in his lips, God struck him down, took away his sanity, and he was crazed like an animal for months for years, he lived as a wild animal until God restored his sanity to him. The punishment came. And in the pride of kings, the punishment again doesn't just fall upon the king. God punishes the nations as well. Jeremiah speaks of the pride of Babylon and the punishment that's going to fall on them as a people. In Jeremiah chapter 50, we read, See, I am against you, O arrogant one declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty, for your day has come, the time for you to be punished. The arrogant one will stumble and fall, and no one will help her up. Where's ancient Babylon today? Israel is reborn and alive in the Middle East. Babylon is just lost in the dusty pages of history because of the pride of the king. Well, not only is the proud king Augustus, but we know from the accounts of another king, the fearful king, Herod the Great. Herod the Great, we put that title after his name because of all of the great buildings he built. Incredible. You go to Israel today on a tour and all the great ruins and things are mostly built by Herod himself. He was a genius in that way. What you see before you is the last remnants of Herod's great building projects. That is that rose-colored stone sarcophagus. It wasn't discovered. Herod's tomb had been lost for millennia. It was only discovered by the great Israeli uh, archaeologist Ehud Netzer in 2007. His tomb had been destroyed. His sarcophagus smashed. His body and bones likely burned and scattered because of the hatred of this great king. Now his greatness was seen in his building projects, the greatest of which was the temple of Herod, the temple that they pointed out to Jesus, and they asked Jesus, have you ever seen such greatness? These stones, they reflect the king. But Jesus knew that Herod, down deep, was a man not of pride so much, but his fear. Fear marked and marred his entire life. Look at some of the facts of his life. His terrible acts that he did again and again. Remember, Herod, though he was king, supposedly of the Jews, he wasn't born Jewish himself. He was an Edomite. He was an Arab. Half of his family came from the hidden city of Petra. They were Nabataeans. They were Arabs. And he was a puppet king, a client king of the Romans. First of Mark Antony and Cleopatra. He sided with them in the Civil War. But when they lost to Augustus, Fearful Herod went on bended knee to Augustus and said, as I was faithful to them, even in losing the war, I will be faithful to you. And Augustus made him an ethnarch, rule of an ethnos, ruler of people. He was the ruler of the Jews. 
But when you have an Arab ruling the Jews, they conspire against you. And so throughout Herod's, uh, Herod's life, rather, he became more and more paranoid, more and more fearful. <clears throat> In his life, he was married at least 10 times, had many wives at a time often. But he would eventually believe the lies that his wives were conspiring against him and have them either banished or put to death. Herod's chosen way of executing his immediate family was always strangulation. He refused to shed their blood. But just being a wife or a son of Herod, that often marked you out for death. But it wasn't just them. He killed his uncle John because he thought he was conspiring. His brother-in-law of royal Jewish blood, Aristobulus, he knew he liked to swim in the pool of Herod's palace in Jericho. And so Herod had his servants uh, drown him in the swimming pool. An accident. His own sons. He killed them right and left. His heir, Antipater, survived until five days before Herod's death. And Herod had his son executed while he was on his deathbed. And we know the famous story, and it's true, that his sister, who was often whispering lies in his ears to poison him in his fearful and paranoid state against other people, he had Salome, he says, gather together all of the sons of the eminent Jews and execute them upon the point of my death so that there will be great mourning throughout Israel. The fearful king. You imagine this crazed, aged, paranoid king when the Magi come to him. A man who would not balk at killing his own flesh and blood. Should it surprise us that he puts to death the children under the age of two in Bethlehem to protect his throne, even in this situation that he didn't fully understand. As we read again in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, in verse 3, after the Magi came, it says, when King Herod heard this, that they came to worship the king of the Jews, he was disturbed. You can imagine what it meant for Herod, the paranoid, fearful king, to be disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When the king was upset, everybody was fearful because they knew anyone could be killed at any moment when Herod was upset. All Jerusalem was fearful. And the thing Scripture says about people living in fear is that they jump at shadows, that that paranoia takes root, and they flee when they shouldn't. The book of Proverbs speaks of that. A couple of the Proverbs Proverbs 28.1, the wicked man flees, though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Proverbs 29.25, fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. It's the thing about us humans when we're fearful, when we're wicked. We tend to project our own fear, our own sinfulness onto those around us. We think everybody is as bad as we are. And that's what Herod did. So he killed with impunity. And what does that lead to? When he found that the Magi had avoided him, he thought he was manipulating them to allow them to tell him where the Christ child was born so he could kill him in the cradle. We read in verses 16 and 17 of Matthew, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. 
and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. The slaughter of the innocents. Rooted in fear. So we have all the world afoot because of the pride of a king. We have children losing their lives and a mad king, mad by fear, seeking to kill Jesus. The third king. The third king was the humble king. It was the king born not in a palace, but in a stable. Laid not on silk, but on straw. King who made a bed in a manger. The incredible Christmas story, something that we in our wildest imaginations could not conceive of, came to pass. In Luke chapter 2, we read, While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In Breakfast with Dad and Grandpa's yesterday, we talked to the kids about how incredible it is that Jesus came to be one of us, not a ruler over us, but born as the lowest of the low. Why was that? Though a king born so humble, Why did it have to be that humble? I think it reflected who he was going to be as king. In his incarnation, his first coming, he was going to use his power and his position not for his own glory as Augustus did, not to destroy those around him to protect his tenuous hold on power, but Jesus was going to use his power to love and serve, and seek the lost, and save. One of the most powerful passages in Scripture speaks of Jesus and his attitude in all of that. Philippians, the Apostle Paul, perhaps quoting an ancient hymn of the church, says this in verse 5, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. The literal Greek says he poured himself out for us. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The humble king. Therefore, we saw pride and fear and being punished by God, but Jesus, in His humility and His service, is exalted by His Father. Therefore, God exalted Him to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name. That is the name of Jesus at which every knee will bow. The humble King. In God's economy, pride is punished. The lofty are pulled down, but the humble are lifted up. The humble are exalted. And that's why throughout history, as God's people have followed this direction to have this same attitude in us, 
we find that those who are most effective in the kingdom of God have servants' hearts. I'm always a little nervous when I see Christian leaders exalted. Churches of the thousands. They fly on private jets. Their dog houses have air conditioning. Whatever it can be, they're easy targets. It's because we're so different than the humble king that we follow, the servant king that we seek to emulate. But friend, one day, as Christians following in Jesus' footsteps, we serve, we seek the lost, we seek for salvation for those who don't yet know Christ. One day, as Jesus was exalted, we too will see him for who he is, the humble king as the king of kings. And I finish today with that powerful passage from Revelation chapter 19. Apostle John says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Friends, before that great and terrible day of the Lord, people in this broken world have a day of grace, a day to receive Jesus as our Savior as our good shepherd, as the one who washed the disciples' feet, who was a servant of all, because his first coming was as a servant. Second coming brings judgment, and the day of grace draws to a close as the king of kings is revealed in his glory and power, puts the earthly kings like Augustus to shame. Till that day, friends, we need to follow in Jesus' steps. Love with his love. Keep his servant attitude in our hearts so that people may find Jesus and be saved during this day of grace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Christmas story. Lord, how different the king in the manger is than the earthly kings. Power is temporary. It brings pride and judgment. But Lord, the day is over so quickly and they're lost to history. Lord, today the temples of Augustus lie in ruins, but churches in which people celebrate and worship Jesus stretch around the globe. Herod is forgotten. His great works are in ruins He's known today as a madman rather than a mighty king. And yet Jesus' followers, they love and they serve. They seek to be selfless in sharing Jesus in word and deed. Lord, today, may we grow more to be like Jesus and less like the kings of the world. Bless us during this Christmas season. 
Make the Christmas story and the meaning behind it fresh and new in our hearts. We ask all of this in the name of our King, Jesus. Amen. God bless.